The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. My name is Arti Swaminathan. I am the housing reporter for Market Watch, and I'm joined today by my guest, Ali Wolf of Zonda Research. Hi, Ali. Hi, Arti. <laughs> it's so great to see you here. So, Let's start off with some, more about you. Who is Ali Wolf? You do some research at Zonda Research, kind of an interesting um, place to be. And you're also based in California. So tell me a little bit about your company and the kind of work you do and why that would be interesting for our audience. Yeah, so I am the chief economist for Zonda. Zonda is a housing data and consultancy firm. So we track the entire building life cycle from raw land all the way up to the closing out of new home communities. So our role is to work with builders, developers, private equity, hedge funds, policymakers to make sense of what's happening in the housing market. And RT, you mentioned that I live in California, one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. And I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, one of the least expensive housing markets in the country. So I've really seen the, the gamut of, of how the market can look. Mm -hmm. So let's start off by setting the scene, because I think today the Mortgage Bankers Association said that rates are above 6.65% and rates are heading towards 7%. So what are builders and sellers sell saying at this point? Because we know what home buyers are feeling, they're pulling back demand, but what are the builders and the sellers saying right now? Yeah, and RT, even if we look last week, we had moments of time where if you were working with a loan officer, they were quoting a 7% or higher than a 7% interest rate. So the lower interest rates will be you need to have the perfect credit score and a good down payment to get some of the best financing options. What we're hearing is that the seller side from a builder side or from a realtor side, we're working with both. They definitely feel nervous that they've seen demand fall off. And I think at first there was a lot of, oh, we saw demand slow in 2020 and that was six weeks. And so this is probably just a short term blip. And in the housing market, we saw August actually improved a little bit. And it was like, see, that's exactly what we thought. It was a short term blip. And then rates have gone higher and consumers have pulled back more. And now it's like, OK, maybe this is actually something more sustainable. It's not just a couple months, this may be a, a prolonged slowdown in the housing market. Mm -mm -mm. So by slowdown, does that mean that house prices are going to crash? Because I think that's something that people really are thinking about. Are they going to correct? That's a, that's a term that a lot of economists are using now, right? I know. And, and I would say the answer will really depend on what happens to the economy, what happens with job losses. I would say our base case is a correction. And a correction means you could see a drop of 5, 10, 15% nationally. We think some markets will see a more dramatic drop. Some of the markets that had a really massive run up, uh, I think there could be a scenario that led to a crash. Again, that's not our base case. Our base case is prices come down, but they don't come down anywhere near like the great financial crisis. And I think part of that's because if you look at lending standards, 
incredibly different from where we came from. So I think that gives me support, but it also doesn't mean you can't see a correction in home prices because I think in some markets we already are. Mm -mm. And does that change if the U.S. goes through a recession? Does that change with the recession versus non-recession model? Do you think prices will correct even more sharply? I'll say at Zonda, our base case is that we have what we're calling a run-of-the-mill recession, which is looking at not 2000, not 2020 and not the great financial crisis, but looking at some of the other recessions that we've seen in the U.S., we could be wrong. I think we all know with quantitative tightening, with the changes in Fed policy, with inflation where it is today, run of the mill seems like a, a safe answer, but maybe not the most likely. So our forecasts are based on a run of the mill recession. Uh, if it ends up being more dramatic than that, of course, our forecasts are wrong. If we end up not falling into a recession at all, then the numbers that I said just a couple moments ago about seeing a 5 or 10% drop in national home prices probably doesn't end up coming true, at least across the country. Someone, I think yesterday, one of the readers um, that read my stories was telling me that I think it was in the Coachella Valley that house prices were coming down tremendously, right? So in some of the Western markets, they're seeing a steeper than usual price decline. So tell us a little bit about some of these special markets like the pandemic boom towns how steep will they be and any specific cities you want to highlight yeah so i'm not surprised to hear about the coachella valley what really happened so for people that aren't familiar with southern california you're going inland to get to that area and there are some employment centers there but generally that was either a lifestyle choice or an affordability choice and i remember talking to builders that were going out to that part of southern california saying I can't believe how much land prices have gotten. I can't believe how much we're pricing these homes. But for a really long time, people continue to show up to buy them. And what's happening in an area like Coachella Valley or parts of Salt Lake City, parts of Denver, parts of Boise, Las Vegas, Phoenix, those were some of the areas that rose, Austin as well. Those are some of the areas that rose very, very quickly. It basically, I think there was a belief among buyers, there was a belief among investors, and probably even a belief among the development community that prices could only go up forever. And they just had to build the homes because we're so undersupplied. And, and I think that what we realized is there is a limit to what people are either willing or able to pay. And so RT, you're talking about prices going down. Yeah, in some markets, we have heard of prices going down 20% already. Um, from a builder point of view, if they have standing inventory, they're just trying to move that product. So sometimes they'll cut prices quick uh, versus trying to stretch this out and let those homes sit and try a 1%, a 2%, a 3% drop. Sometimes they just go hard if they feel demand has slowed enough. So on that note, on whether we're building enough homes, and that's a really interesting point because if we're having a shortage of homes, why isn't the market just responding? Why aren't builders just building homes? And just help us understand a little bit about some of the, the market dynamics and why demand isn't equal to supply. Yeah. So this is, and I'm going to talk too long, so you're going to just have to cut me off at a certain point because there's so many things to say here. But I think the first thing is we are not under the belief that we're four or six million units undersupplied. We think that's a far greater number than the reality. Our estimates is that we're maybe between one and two. We, we have an exact number, but remember, it just depends on the assumptions that you put into that. With that being said, what happens is you can be long-term, you can be structurally undersupplied, but you can be cyclically oversupplied. 
And that's what we've seen recently is that we don't have enough homes on the ground at certain price points, but when prices go up too much and people recouple, what we saw over the past couple of years is people moved out from their family. They moved out from their roommates. They moved out from living with their friends. When inflation is this high, when home prices are this high, when rent's this high, people buddy up again. And that takes out the number of our estimate is we could see as much as 2.5 million people move back in with friends and family. And if that's the case, and if we think we're 1.5 million units under supply for a short period of time, you're actually not as undersupplied as you were. That doesn't take away from the long-term belief that we need to get more homes built, but that does change as we go by the cycle in the housing market. That's really interesting. And it also speaks to the fact that a lot of people I've been talking to, buyers are stuck renting, right? So it's very mm. interesting what's happening in that. But just going back to builders and the perspectives, you have been tweeting about cancellations and price cuts. So tell us about the magnitude of these incentives. Are they escalating? Mm. I know it's different in mm. local markets. Some markets builders can afford to wait. But where are you seeing some of the steepest price cuts? Yeah. So let's start with the cancellations, because I think that's one of the numbers that really gets spread the most. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about so cancellation is someone comes in, whether on the new or the resale side, they sign a contract. And now you're waiting from that contract to closing to see if you're going to go through with closing that home and, and changing the transfer of ownership. And we saw and, and at Zonda, we were able to say we felt like the inflection point in the market was April because not because there were a lot of cancellations at that point, but we basically came from over two years of having no cancellations to just starting to hear of people on the edges that were either like, I don't know if I'm going to have my job. I don't know how I feel about the market. And also housing prices have gone up and I don't know how the market's going to progress. And I just feel uncomfortable. So we saw that in April, not a big share of the market whatsoever, just a little bit here or there. And we're like, that's weird. We haven't seen that in a while. Our data for September shows that the national cancellation rate now is 17%. If you don't track that data closely, not URT, but to the broader audience, that was 7% as we go back before the pandemic. So you're always going to have a certain amount of cancellation, people getting cold feet, whatever it may be. Clearly, we're operating at an elevated level. And some of the markets that we were just talking about across the, the West, which is where the housing slowdown has been more notable, uh, we have seen cancellations get up to 40% in some markets. So those really stand out to us. And I'll stop to let you ask another question, but, but I'll say tying back to your original thing, when you have those high cancellations, that's when you're going to see more dramatic price cuts. That's when you're going to see an increased use of incentives. That's crazy, right? Like that increase in cancellation because people just don't mm -hmm. want to buy a home. Cancellation of new homes, specifically new homes, they're not old existing homes. And that's really interesting. Do you feel like builders are like, oh my God, nobody's buying these homes. So should I just set a, you know, sell it to an institutional investor and put it out for rent? Is that something that's accelerating? Uh, so... <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. So let's let's before I directly answer that, let's round out the rest of the country. So we said uh, Mountain West is doing fairly poorly. Right. Uh, the Southwest is not doing particularly great. Parts of the Pacific region, you are seeing the price cuts. The market feels slower. Midwest is slower, but 
holding up all things considered. Uh, for context, we like to compare things to 2019. So we're seeing a lot of the West markets are below 2019 levels of sales. Midwest is right about 2019. Southeast, right about 2019. And same with the Northeast. So mm -hmm. it's almost a very clear divide of the country. So I don't want to answer in a blanket statement because it will depend in areas where there are a lot of homes that are now standing inventory and there are a lot of homes that are under construction and there's a high cancellation rate, you better believe those homes are getting sold off to whoever will buy them. And if that is an investor and if that is a built to rent or a, um, someone that's going to own it to turn it into a rental, that is going to happen in some markets. Uh, mm -hmm. Our data shows that it's a 50-50 of builders that say that they're exploring selling off homes to built to rent investors versus not. Uh, my coworker kind of makes a joke that 50% of them are lying, um, meaning that probably everyone is, is at least considering or entertaining the option, but I don't think everyone is doing that at that point. It's really interesting. It's either they're putting it on the market for short-term or even short-term rentals, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. many people that I spoken to her like yeah i sold my house to an airbnb investor which i thought is an interesting uh, statement i don't know who tracks that but um yeah. you've been traveling across the country where were you where have you been in the last couple of weeks and uh what have you been seeing that's unique to that specific market oh gosh okay so uh, this week i was in dallas and phoenix and oh wow phoenix, such hot yeah, spots so, you're in <laughs> yeah so phoenix is I think what you would imagine, or maybe maybe you wouldn't, but um, Phoenix has slowed really substantially, really fast. And I think from that point of view, what happened in Phoenix is so many higher income people moved there that pushed up base pricing. The pricing was supported because if you have someone moving from California, tapping equity, a $600,000, $700,000, dollars home in Phoenix was like, that's cheap because I'm getting 2,500, 3,000 square feet. You kind of run through some of those pools of the buyers and now you have locals that are like my income hasn't increased that quick so we have seen phoenix slow pretty notably dallas is slower um i think i almost don't i don't talk about dallas as much because austin is is kind of the standout in texas for mm -hmm. being the more dramatic pullback um i was in um uh vegas and it was a realtor event and the realtors just said out of nowhere, the music stopped. And so what we're seeing in a market like that is there's a lot of people that have been selling homes over the past couple of years that maybe were not selling homes in 2017, 18, 19. And they were like, I actually don't know marketing and, and the sales process the way that maybe I should, because I've just had people come in and I was taking orders versus selling. So you're definitely seeing a strategy change from, how do you do business development? How do you get new buyers? Uh, I was in Columbus, Ohio, which all things considered was holding up okay. Uh, the spec inventory was the biggest thing where we went to one community and you could look out the window and it was like, that's a spec home and that's a spec home and that's a spec home. And so they need to move those homes. But I think ultimately the relative affordability is still really strong there. And then I'll finish with Philadelphia. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in Philadelphia recently, and it was a market that from our data is really boring. It was like, there's nothing really happening. Like it's, you know, a little bit of home price appreciation. It's come down, of course, but like a, a inventory is still tight, but sales are down. And I talked to a builder and he said, yeah, it's, it's traditionally a more boring market just because a little bit more of the 
job stability that comes with with that region of the country. But they said they're definitely having to do price cuts and incentives. Uh, but it's not as it's not a 20 percent drop like I mentioned I've seen in some other markets. That's by the way, what is spec inventory for those who are not very well acquainted with that term, if you would just. Yes, thanks. actually, thanks for saying that. Yeah. So spec inventory is when a builder will build a home without a buyer assigned to it. So they're just saying, I believe that someone will buy this home. Uh, that was kind of the run up of the last cycle was a lot of, of course, people will continue to buy homes. We're just going to build spec. We're just going to build spec. The reason we're building specs this cycle is because the costs have gone up so much and there's delays on getting homes built. So a lot of builders shifted to that. I'm going to build a home without a buyer because they wanted to have a, a sense of how much does it cost for me to build this home? And does it take me two or three months longer than I thought it would? And if that's the case, I don't want to sell it to someone because they're going to be upset that the home came to them a couple months too late. Hmm. So different reason why we're seeing spec homes, but, but thanks for the clarification. <laughs> So, by the way, audience, if you have any questions, please put it in the chat and we will get to them in a couple of minutes. But back to Ali. Um, there was an interesting development in California last week, and that was the Governor Gavin Newsom basically signed legislation that said if you have vacant land that retailers are no longer using, you can redevelop that land and build affordable housing. And this is interesting, especially in space constrained areas. So what is the impact of such a legislation for builders and homeowners? Mm -hmm. So there's been actually a few different interesting things that have happened in California related to land use. And I want to highlight those to directly answer your question, which is there was the, the, the law that went in place supporting the accessory dwelling units, also mm -hmm. known as the granny flats, also known as, you know, somewhere else on your property that maybe you could use as a rental and that could help with affordability. When that was put in place, we didn't really see much movement at first. And I think it's companies are still working with their existing land plans and, and they're kind of moving through the process. We're seeing now after, I feel like it's been a couple of years or a few years at this point, we're starting to hear of that becoming more common. So it took time, but now we're hearing, okay, even builders are saying, let's do some kind of ADU so that people can use this as supplemental income. A similar thing was there was a different rule that came in place where it was something like you could convert your existing lot into four homes if you wanted. And that was another thing where it didn't really take off. And I think it's because you're just trying to get to know the regulation and trying to get to know the rules. But I was talking to an architect recently that said now their phone is actually ringing to say, hey, I know that I can split my lot and I can turn it into more homes. So I think ultimately I haven't read all of the details behind that policy change, but I would say it should be supportive. We have seen that there's some some uh, abandoned retail space or underutilized space within the metro where there's not much developable land left. And so if you can reutilize it for a better use and to help support one of the biggest issues in California, which is affordable housing, I think we will see that. I just don't think it changes that much and that quickly. Pivoting to the Florida market, the hurricane had a very big impact on mortgage applications because offices were closed yeah. and people were sort of dealing with the impact of the hurricane. But just zooming out, you know, Florida has a lot of issues and now we're seeing the home insurance market sort of collapse, some are saying, it might it could collapse and insurance premiums are going up. So does it even make sense to 
buy a home or even build a home in Florida. I mean, that's a sort of a blanket statement. I'm just curious on your about your reaction, especially with so much climate change, so so many risks involved when you have a home in Florida. Yeah, and horrible, horrible the the hurricane. I just talked to my friend that owns a home in Fort Myers, and I think. I don't think she's planning to move, but I think she was just like, this was so just, you know, destructive and do people rebuild and can they financially support being able to rebuild? Um, from what we see, there still is a lot of migration and there's still support to Florida. So I'm not going to say to, to say all bets are off. I think that does make people think a little bit more about, you know, does this feel like it's a more climate safe place or not. And and if I build my home, do I want to put in extra protections? Do I want to take on more insurance? But that comes with an additional cost. So I think the coastal parts uh, will have people reevaluating their decision. And I think probably running the numbers a little bit more than they, maybe they would have. Um, when you look at other parts of Florida, Jacksonville and Orlando, it seems like those markets have seen a massive run up in home prices. And, and they're also pulling back a little bit. But uh, I don't hear conversations about climate change as much in those areas. And I think for a lot of reasons, just because from a category or from a from a hurricane point of view, um, they obviously get some of the after effects, but don't feel some of the at least not recently have felt some of the immediate damage of it. For a builder, for a builder perspective, does that increase the cost of building a more durable home? I'm just curious, mm -hmm. like if if you have a house on Fort Myers you and you want to rebuild you must build something much stronger so that your house doesn't get swept up mm -hmm. and then god forbid the next hurricane so what are builders sort of changing strategy or is it just too early to have this conversation right now I'll say I don't personally know what that means in terms of cost but what I'll say is I remember just for my house I had to get hurricane insurance and they said make sure that you put extra funds towards getting your home back up to code so I think that it does because we have seen, and I think it's the right thing to do, like you're trying to make these homes more durable, more resilient, you're trying to make them more sturdy. But I think at least from my experience, when you're trying to figure out how do you get from here to there, it does cost more money. So whether that means the builder takes the hit or probably ultimately gets passed on to the consumer that if they want to buy this home, it is going to it is gonna be better quality, but you also have to pay for that quality. Zooming out to something that was a big hot topic, supply chain, right? Supply chain issues are something that are always very fascinating. John Burns said that we, we were missing window casements. And uh, at some point I saw stories about garage doors missing. So what are builders missing now? Is the supply chain still constrained? What, where is the biggest pain point for them right now? Yeah, so the supply chain is interesting because if you think about where we came from, the biggest supply chain issues we had over the past couple of years were some of those early inputs to getting homes built, things like framing. And as we track it now at Zonda, what we're finding is that it's becoming the later components, meaning what you said, windows, we're still seeing issues from that, HVAC equipment, so your air conditioning, we're, we're seeing issues with that. Appliances still, appliances have been top of the list actually for probably 18 months. So still seeing some issues on appliances uh cabinets so you can hear all of these like the house is now built and now you're waiting for those final touches to get the home closed our sense is it is better it is not good uh, so for example what we heard for windows is it was something like 
it used to be before the pandemic of four week lead time. During the height of the pandemic, it got to a 24 week lead time. Where we are today, it's a 10 week lead time. So you have seen the improvement. It's not back to where it was. And again, it depends on the component. I think the belief is better, but still there. And then the wild card, of course, is the Port of Los Angeles and what happens for the rest of this year. Hmm. Hmm. How shipping lanes have become such a such an important part of our economy. I think people really like it's kind of the story of economics, right? Economics 101. But I'm going to turn to reader questions for a couple of minutes and um, just answer some of the things that people are really curious about. So I don't know if you want to answer this, Ali, but where do you believe rates will eventually settle for the longer term? That's from Chris. And James, along the same veins, is asking, uh, along the same vein is asking, how high will rates go? Will rates settle down within the next two to three years? So I was brought in and out to, do you think we're going to get double digit rates at all like you know a couple of decades ago so this is how i'll answer this which is anyone forecasting mortgage rates needs to have a lot of humility because <laughs> you're basically trying to forecast what happens to the tenure what happens to fed what happens to inflation what happens to employment what happens to a recession so you, all of those assumptions have to be right for your mortgage rate forecast to be right so with that being said we used to have a model that gave us one number it just spat out that mortgage rates would be this and that one number was wrong. So we were like, okay, something's wrong with our forecast. So, let, so let's change it out. And we changed a model. Some of you may be familiar with it, where basically it spits out all of these different lines that says it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And then as they cluster, it's telling you where they're most likely to be. And our model is telling us they're likely to remain above 5%. Our model tells us they go as high as 8 that could be wrong. Our model doesn't really have many examples of inflation being this high and quantitative tightening happening this quick and the changes to the short-term interest rate happening this quick. That's what our model says. That's that's what I'm going to need to rely on because I, I'm not smarter than it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at that. But um, sure, there's a chance they could go higher than that. I think what we're going to we're going to publish something soon that looks at what might happen once you fall into a recession. And as you look at a recession, we do know that generally that is the flight to safety to, to the 10 year treasury. And then ultimately that, that pulls it down. So as you look at a recession 12 to 18 months out, mortgage rates are historically lower than where they start. Uh, so we're looking that, when does the recession officially start? What do we see with the job losses to define that? And then we think they come down a response. That's normally what they do, but obviously a lot of wild cards today. People always say, I don't have a crystal ball, but but this is it. I'm just asking you to get a crystal ball for me. So thank you for uh, giving us a insight into like how mortgage rates work as well, because I, I feel yeah. like that's something that people need to be reminded of. It's not the Fed setting um, mortgage rates. It's a complicated mechanism. But um, Jamie here wants to know, uh, how does this high inflation, high mortgage rate, interest rate environment affect multifamily rents? And I don't mm. think we talked very specifically about multifamily. Uh, very interesting stuff happening there. Do these mm. higher rates affect multifamily rents? Do they filter it down to it? It's kind of interesting because multifamily rents affects how the Fed thinks, right? So we didn't know So this is a really interesting question because what we find is even yesterday, when I was in Phoenix, I had a question from the audience that said, hey, so this means that more people are going to become renters. And from my point of view, that's not the right way to phrase it. It means more people will remain renters. 
It doesn't mean all of a sudden people have, have gone into that space. It means that the majority of people that we talk to that are renting ultimately do want to be homeowners. Some people don't, they love renting, but generally the, the hope is maybe I want to convert to being a homeowner one day. We believe that that gets stretched out in response to this. So you have more people that are going to be renting, but this goes back to the decoupling versus recoupling. We think that when you have this high inflationary environment and you have rents that are still elevated, the good news is we're finally seeing a little bit of compression on the rental side. We have a multifamily expert who uh, has said that we're seeing a little bit of a return to normal and healthier occupancy, a little bit of a relief on the overall rent numbers, a little bit of a drop in the renewal rate. All of those are telling us that something's changing and that maybe it's getting more close to normal. But we also know that when you have these high costs, people may say, you know, during the pandemic, I moved out from living with my roommate. We both were working from home. Now we're hybrid. Now I don't need that extra space. And gosh, my rent keeps going up every every year. So we think that some people do go back into the reforming with roommates or friends. And we think that can help alleviate some of the pressure on rent. So we think inflation and higher costs changes people's internal math, their internal balance sheet for their for their household, and they're they're going to change their behavior as a result. Not to mention the fact that here in New York and New Jersey, rents are just crazy high for a two-bedroom. You know, they increase by, in this house, $800 a month. You know, that's that obviously changes the calculus of where you live, if you want to downsize exactly all the things you're saying. But I think we have time for one more question. I know it's 1229. I'm just going to squeeze in one more question here. But in regards to land use, which is something I feel like you really have a good grip on, how can city officials, leadership, modify and plan zoning? Basically, I think this is getting to the fact that the single family zoning is sort of what dominates yeah. um, land use here. So what else can city officials do do they follow the California example? Is there a specific model that you think people should follow? So I'm glad you said the California model because that's where my mind was going anyways. So if you look at California, New York, DC, Miami, these are areas that have been expensive for a very long time. And the cities have already worked with land planners and architects and builders to say, what's the most efficient use of this space? And how can we still create a neighborhood that doesn't have too much congestion, that people can still walk to schools, but you can convert people to home ownership? I think in a lot of markets across the country, and frankly, this is the silver lining of everything we talked about today, places like the Midwest, places like the Southeast, they have not had to do really creative new home product. They haven't been really creative with the land. They have from a aesthetic point of view, from a master plan community point of view, but I think there are still a lot of cards that can be played across the country to help account for how much land prices have gone up and home prices have gone up by city officials learning from examples across the country and trying to allow for a little bit more density as long as it's well planned out and is still somewhere people want to live. Mm -mm -mm. Interesting. So I think we will have to wrap up now. I know that a lot of our listeners have uh, a number of questions, but that's really all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ali. And um, I, I would invite people to tweet at her, I guess, if they want to respond. And then Ali, you can respond to them if that's something you want to do. We hope that you listeners will join us tomorrow for our next episode where Barron's deputy editor Ben Levishan and healthcare industry reporter John Nathan Katzis discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks and the latest news on the COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. So 
Thank you everyone for listening to our conversation about the housing market. Hope you learned something. If not, I hope you had a great time listening and stay safe and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.